Oh, there's another sketch. I'm gonna see if I have my sketches. Um, some sketches. Oh, here's Eminem M six nine. Hello, explorers. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This is your host, Mike Wall, and I'm thrilled to bring back the planetary scientist, science illustrator, and huge Trekkie, James T. Keene, to the show. James is a postdoc at Caltech, studying the geophysics of planetary bodies, the shapes of the solid parts of planets, how they spin, flip, deform, that kind of thing. I sat down with him during my visit in February 2019 to ask him about his experience as part of the New Horizons team during the spacecraft's epic encounter with the Kuiper Belt object MU-69 on New Year's Day. New Horizons made its name by being the first human-made probe to travel to Pluto, encountering and unveiling that marvelous new world in July 2015. But in order to get to Pluto in under 10 years, it had to pick up quite a pace, and so New Horizons was always destined to fly right up to its target destination, and then sail right on past. By chance, the Hubble Space Telescope found an object even farther out in the Kuiper Belt that was within steering distance. So after Pluto, New Horizons set its course for an object called MU-69. I was brought onto the New Horizons science team shortly after its encounter with Pluto to analyze Pluto's atmospheric chemistry. But since MU-69 is too small to have an atmosphere, they transferred me off the ship for the extended mission. Thus, when the team gathered at the Applied Physics Laboratory in Maryland this New Year's Day to watch their spacecraft beam back the first images of this strange new world, I wasn't invited. But luckily for me, and for you, we have James to live vicariously through. So today, we'll talk to James about the startling science of MU-69 and the trekkiest thing that happened at the flyby. Then, we'll examine the plausibility of the crisscrossing rings of the planet Terra Elysium in the Star Trek Discovery episode, New Eden. And finally, we'll catch up on our Discovery bingo sheets. Ready? Engage. James, could you describe your role on the New Horizons team? I, I assume you're not a red shirt. Um. <laughs> I don't know. We've had this conversation about where do artists go in Starfleet Division and what color shirt they have. Maybe I have like a purple shirt or something. Um, so I'm in New Horizons in a very unique role. I'm part of the science team. Uh, I'm in the geology and geophysics investigation team, or also known as GGI, but I'm also there as an artist. So I have this unique role of being both scientist and artist. 
So during the encounter, I'm both doing real-time science, analyzing data as it comes down, and doing live sketches of the data and different hypotheses and even the team occasionally in an effort to try to um, synthesize results and create things that are both readily available for the public to, to see and understand and for the team to, to look at and spur discussion. So I think everybody has a good understanding of like that an artist uses paper and pencil to create art. But as a geophysicist, what are you using to do your science? Well, first of all, I'll add a little caveat is I was actually not the only artist there. Although I was the one who was brought there to do art, there are actually a lot of artists on the team by chance. And so there were people that were doing digital art. There were people doing 3D clay media art and all sorts of other things. But to your question about what I do to do my science. So I am a geophysicist and I'm primarily a theoretical geophysicist. So that means that I use math and physics and a lot of computer code to work out what we think things will look like or to test predictions for how things work. So yeah, I use a lot of computers and math. (laughs) Yes, computers and math are very, very powerful. I'm reminded of Tilly's line in Star Trek Discovery. That's the power of math, people. High five. High five, exactly. Do Do you often feel that sense of joy in your research when you've just used math and physics to figure something out about a strange new world? And do you ever high five your office mate or high five yourself or like just feel the inclination to do something like that because of the joy of the power of math? I don't know if I've ever high five someone. I've definitely used Tilly's propensity to curse (laughs) in joy. Um, And so that pops up in the office. And it's definitely exciting when things work, which takes a lot of effort to make things work and to make a a prediction that holds true or to discover something in the math, in the physics that you weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. There are moments like that. Um, I don't quite have exactly Tilly's exuberance, but a lot of scientists have some of that buried within them. I've never been at a planetary encounter before. So can you sort of describe the scene for me and what exactly is happening, what is coming down, and how people are reacting to it? Sure. So, I mean, you say you haven't been to a planetary encounter, and that's true of, I think, most planetary scientists these days. New Horizons is really unique. It really goes back to the days of, like, Voyager and Mariner, where you build up to these once-in-a-lifetime events where your spacecraft flies by something, and it never comes back. So over the span of a few days, you go from knowing next to nothing about your object to knowing more than you'll ever know for the rest of your lifetime for that object. So for MU69, as New Horizons was speeding towards it for the last several years, it was basically a point of light. New Horizons itself actually could not see it in their camera, even in their deepest exposure, until a few months out. And so they relied a lot on the Hubble Space Telescope and ground-based observatories to learn about it. And even then, it's only ever a pixel. And so as New Horizons is speeding toward it, it basically turned from a pixel into a couple pixels about a day out. And then it had the flyby on New Year's Eve, 
And during the flyby, at its closest approach, it transformed from a world that's a few pixels to something that's several thousand pixels across. And we will be getting the equivalent of an HD image back, or several HD images back from New Horizons. We haven't seen all those data yet because New Horizons takes a long time to send the data back. But the data that we did have and, and did send back at the encounter was really breathtaking. And at every single data dump that came down from the Deep Space Network, everyone would huddle around their computers or around the projectors in the different science team rooms and just wait for literally individual lines of camera like readout to pop up and just see what MU69 would turn out to be. And every moment was you were both exhausted because you've been up for God knows how many hours because the deep space network doesn't work on human time. It just works on spacecraft time. And so data's coming down all the time. So you're exhausted. It's exhilarating. You are just filled with both caffeine <laughs> to, to make it through there and the pure excitement of seeing something that no one's ever seen before. And then it very quickly transitions from excitement to joy to holy shit what is this <laughs> and what can i do for the science or, or me back in the corner um sitting behind brian may <laughs> how do i translate this into art and yeah it, it's just it's a chaotic but exciting and fun mess of emotion and thought it sounds truly exciting because you have no idea what that next line of data or image is going to look like and it's it's absolutely brand new and it, i'm picking up now one of james's sketches and it's got all sorts of shapes on it so is this in any way representative of how you were like discovering mu69 you you started you started drawing different shapes based on the little bit of data that you had and then uh, just filled in the rest of your imagination, and then slowly that morphed into the bilobate, is that the correct yep. word, bilobate shape that we uh, know it is today? Yeah, so leading into a counter, we, even though we couldn't see what MU69 looked like, we still had some idea of its shape, and that came from occultation campaigns on the ground. So this was done in the years leading up to the encounter. Basically, Mark Bowie and several others on the New Horizons team planned out when they knew stars would be flying behind MU69 as MU69 moves across the sky. And they were able to position telescopes around the Earth to observe these occultations and observe basically the shadow of MU69 as it flew past these stars. And from that, we knew some rough idea of its shape before the encounter. So there were many hypotheses that it was a contact binary or two objects touching. But we didn't know for sure and we wouldn't know until we actually got there. So the, the sketch that Mike's holding up is just, I think I called it my like menagerie of different MU69s because there's all sorts of different shapes that could actually fit what MU69 would be. And I think I took bets within the team about which one it is. And in the end, it doesn't quite look like any of these exactly. It was something unique, which is what I expected. But these were useful for getting people thinking about what shapes would you expect what features would you expect because the shape often tells you something about the formation and the different geologic processes so what shape does mu69 actually have so mu69 is what we would call a contact binary so it has two lobes one big lobe 
and one small lobe. The entire object is about 30 kilometers in length down the longest axis. And the small lobe is sort of spherical-ish, maybe like a little football. And the bigger lobe, which is maybe twice the size of the smaller lobe, is quite flat. It's almost like a hamburger patty or a pancake or something. And the two of these things, the big flat lobe and the more spherical smaller lobe, are just barely touching one another. They're almost like they're kissing one another. And when they're just touching, these two objects are just touching, we refer to that as a contact binary, meaning the two objects are in contact. Another way you could describe it is that it's a bilobed structure or bilobate structure, meaning that there are two different lobes. And so the New Horizons observations beautifully confirmed the, the occultation data that we had gotten in the previous few years. But one of the things that we didn't quite expect was exactly how flattened the entire thing is. And we didn't even know that on New Year's Day or the day, a few days after. That was only something that we realized several weeks after as more data came down. So as we were flying towards MU69, we were basically seeing MU69 from the top down. So you could see this sort of snowman shape. But we couldn't tell how, we didn't get any information about the depth, the sort of the, the distances into the plane or like the z-axis. It was only after we got some more oblique views that we could truly see how flat there are. So a lot of the shape models and even my early sketches showed it as sort of two spheres that were touching. In the end, it's more like two frisbees touching, two pancakes. <laughs> yeah. Looks to me like somebody squashed two balls and um, deflated them and sort of put them together. What does that teach us about the formation of MU69? Was it originally two separate objects that then were gravitationally attracted to one another and then bumped into each other and sort of just stuck to each other? So the fact that there are two objects that are touching tells you immediately that they had to form gently. So in most like planetary collisions that you think about, like near Earth or on the moon when things hit the moon or even in the asteroid belt when two asteroids collide, they're pretty intense. Things hit at high speeds and they break apart. They explode effectively. But these two objects are, the two lobes are so perfectly preserved it looks like they gently collided. And so that's telling us that MU69 likely formed in a gentle accretionary environment, which is sort of what we expect based on our current understanding of the formation of the solar system at these distances. So the solar system started out as a swirling disk of gas and dust, and out at these distances, the dust particles sort of stuck together, clumped together, gravitationally collapsed into individual little blobs. And that whole process can be quite gentle. And so we think that it started out as several blobs that coalesced into these two objects, and then those two objects spiraled in and gently touched one another. We don't know exactly why the lobes are pretty flat. That was really surprising when we realized that that was the case, because you just sort of think of things as when they clump together that you'll form nice spherical balls. Mm -hmm. Could it have been that they're spinning and that sort of flattens their shape? Maybe. So if you take something and spin it up, it will become more oblate. It will get squished out and it'll bulge out at the equator. And if you spin something fast enough, it could make a shape like 
the big lobe of MU69. And so if you actually spun MU69 up to about rotating once every four hours or so, it would bulge out to that if it had no internal strength. However, MU69 is currently pretty slowly rotating. It's going around once every 15 hours or 16 hours. And it's not obvious how you would lose all that extra angular momentum. And it's really hard to lose angular momentum, especially in the, in the Kuiper belt. So maybe you could form it from that fast rotation, but we're not really certain. It's kind of interesting, though, that if you look at MU69, the flatness is, and its overall shape is kind of similar to what you see in the, the small moons in Saturn's rings. Hmm. Atlas and Pan, they look like discuses with maybe a lump in the middle or something. They, they tend to be really flat, and that's because the ring particles in Saturn's rings are gently falling onto the body, and you build up these big, big equatorial bulges. Now, we don't really think that that's how MU69 formed. There was no ring for it to be in out there. But this is a, an example of some structure that you built from gentle accretion. And so they may be similar in that regard. Now, there's another solar system object that roughly also has this type of shape. The object I'm thinking of is 67P, the, the comet that the Rosetta spacecraft visited. It also sort of has this bilobate shape. So is there any connection between the formation mechanism for that object and for MU69, or were they formed by two different processes? You're not going to try to pronounce churyumov gerasimenko I'm shocked that you can do that. <laughs> Whenever I talk about 67P, I always call it 67P, Russian name, Russian name. <laughs> churyumov gerasimenko That's awesome. Um, practice. So yes, uh, the other really notable example of a bilobed object in our solar system is 67P Cherimov-Karashminko, the Rosetta Comet. There, 67P is a lot smaller than MU69. It's only about a couple kilometers across, whereas MU69 is 30 kilometers across. And it kind of looks like a rubber ducky, where it has a big lobe connected by a neck to a smaller lobe. One of the long-standing questions about MU69 and other comets that have this bilobe structure is whether that structure is primordial. Is that how that comet originally formed? Or is it something that happens later in a comet's life? So, for example, comets, they come in from the outer solar system and swing by the sun. And as they go by the sun, they get heated. They lose gas and ice and dust, and they change their shapes. And so maybe you could preferentially erode in some region and build or like excavate a neck. So there was always this sort of ambiguity whether they were primordial or not. MU69 has never gone anywhere close to the sun. It's basically sat at the edge of the solar system since the solar system was born. And it has this bilobe structure. So it, it's a really good indicator that the shapes of comets may actually be primordial in nature. And which is really interesting because then that tells you about comet formation. So what else besides MU69's strange but fascinating shape did we learn as a result of this encounter? Aside from the shape, we did get pretty high-resolution images of the surface. And probably by the time that this podcast is down, there will be even higher-resolution images. And so we were able to see a lot of the geology that's going on the surface. And aside from the shape, probably the, the single biggest mystery about the surface geology is the bright neck of MU69. 
So if you think about MU69 as a sort of a snowman that got ran over by a car or something, <laughs> um, so it's it's flattened. Um, the neck, if you imagine it had like a scarf around it, is brighter than the rest of MU69. And we don't know why that's the case. It could be that material has slumped into the neck and that material is intrinsically brighter, like if it's being exposed from underneath and then collapses. It could be something to do with the temperature in the neck. If you're in the bottom of this sort of neck ravine, maybe you're shadowed more from the sun, so maybe you get less sunlight. Or maybe the walls reflect in more sunlight. Or maybe they hide you from galactic cosmic rays. Or maybe it's bright because <laughs> the two lobes came together and they like squished and did something weird at the contact. It's it's an unusual place on ME69 and it looks different. So that was probably the, the next biggest um, mystery for us to solve that we still haven't solved for ME69. Um, another one that's really weird is in the last images that we got, or the most recent images that we got, we finally were able to see some craters on the surface, or at least pits, things that look like depressions in the ground. And there's a lot of discussion about whether these things are actually craters, impact craters from little objects hitting MU69, or if they are the result of sublimation of material sort of outgassing off MU69, like on a comet. And right now there's evidence going both ways, and we're still trying to figure that out. MU69 is dynamically cold, meaning it's always been out in a very circular orbit. If it was warm enough to outgas anything, it would have happened in the first million years or so. Like, it would have happened a long time ago. We had no expectation for outgassing or like cometary activity today, and New Horizons didn't find any. They didn't detect any dust particles flying through the system or mm. any gas when flying through the system. So sublimation would be kind of surprising if, if we could see evidence for it. Um, impact craters, there shouldn't be that many because there's so few objects out that far. It's not like the moon where if you zoom in, it's just all covered in craters. There's just literally not enough things to hit ME69. So it should be pretty devoid of craters, but... This is something where we hope that the higher resolution images that were probably already out by the time you listen to this and probably already completely disproving all the hypotheses I'm throwing out in this podcast. <laughs> That's um, how science works, right? Yeah. I, I asked you, what did we learn as a result of the encounter? And you just gave me all the questions that we learned that we needed to ask about yeah. MU69. All right. So I see on your numerous sketches here, there are many different spacecraft. Most of them are New Horizons, but you also have some more advanced spacecraft. So I see a Discovery. Uh, what else is out there? Uh, I'm sure there's an Enterprise out here. Um, Rosetta does make an appearance. Okay. Uh, um, yes. The Enterprise, would it be the... Classic original? Would it be Kelvin timeline or well, this Discovery? Was, you have to keep in mind that this was New Year's Eve, New Year's Day time frame, which was before Discovery came out. So I was very much interested in Discovery's version of the Enterprise. So I'm pretty sure there's a, a disco Enterprise floating around <laughs> over here somewhere. So besides you drawing Star Trek spacecraft on your sketches, what was the Star Trekiest thing that happened at the encounter? <laughs> I met Lita. Really? <laughs> Wait, Chase Masterson? I met Chase Masterson. <laughs> what? Why was she there? 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the most Star Trek-y thing is for reasons that I don't know. Um, Chase Masterson was at the encounter. She apparently knows Alan Stern and was there and came by the science operations building for a bit. And so I got to meet Chase Masterson. So that's the Star trek thing. I was not expecting that. I thought you would say something completely different. But apparently, (laughs) yes, there was a Star Trek actor there. Um, And for those of you who don't know, Alan Stern is like the captain of... New Horizons. He's the principal investigator or PI, and he's he's the one who's basically has pushed for New Horizons for the last thirty years. He's the reason that New Horizons is the spacecraft it is today, and why we have explored Pluto and Mu sixty nine. If you do see me in any of the stock photos, you'll see that I'm wearing a Star Trek badge. That's so. right. It it got Mike Akuda's attention on Twitter. Yeah, that was really special to see. Yeah, uh, Mike Akuda tweeted. This is wonderful. And who is that guy in the Starfleet jacket? (laughs) (laughs) It's just a blue jacket with a patch on it. A patch and a combat. Do you want to talk about your other blue jacket? (laughs) (laughs) So, Inovos. (laughs) If if anyone from Inovos is listening, I'm still waiting on my Star Trek Beyond jacket. I will wear it to conferences and NASA events. You'll get free press. (laughs) But I need it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We've been waiting a long time for that jacket. Yeah. Um, okay. So sliding between sciencey things and Star Trek things, we noticed that in episode two of Star Trek Discovery, New Eden, there was a planet, um, an Earth-like planet, but it had these beautiful crisscrossing rings. And James and I had a whole text message discussion about the physics of crisscrossing rings. <laughs> and I, I teased that I would ask James the next time I saw him about the physical or unphysical nature of such structures in space. And uh, Brandon Shea Mutala, who is a dedicated listener of Strange New Worlds and a Trek FM podcaster himself, pleaded on Twitter, please explain that to me because it just looked so beautiful, but also so wrong. And I'm not really sure why. So James, can you give some physical reason to all of our intuition about why these crisscrossing rings just don't really make sense? Well, they might make sense. Oh, okay. Um, So uh, in our solar system, all the ring systems that we see around all the gas giants and even a couple smaller objects like Haumea, a dwarf planet in the Kuiper Belt, the rings are always in the equatorial plane of their host planet or small body. Okay, so why are inclined rings problematic? So let's start with the scenario where you have a planet, say New Eden, and you want to build a ring. The way rings form is one of several ways. Either you have a moon that's spiraling in due to tides and eventually gets close enough to the planet that it gets tidally disrupted. For example, the moon Phobos around Mars is currently spiraling in towards Mars and eventually will either hit the atmosphere or get disrupted and maybe form a little ring around Mars for a time. You could also form a ring if you had another object like a passing asteroid or comet fly by and break up. But in either case, you're breaking up and making a big chunk of debris that's going to start orbiting the planet. As it's orbiting the planet, let's assume initially that it's orbiting on a plane that's inclined to the planet's equator. So it's initially an inclined ring. Now, planets are not spherical. 
they have some obliqueness, like MU69, or like any of the planets, like Jupiter or even Saturn. If you look at Saturn, it is you can actually tell by eye that it is squashed. That squashedness affects how things orbit. And one way that the oblateness of a planet affects planetary rings is it causes inclined rings to precess, meaning the plane of the ring will actually rotate around. And that precession depends on the distance from the planet. So things closer in will precess faster than things further out. So again, go back to our hypothetical situation where you form an inclined ring around some planet. That inclined ring will have some width, and that width means that the inner edge of the ring and the outer edge of the ring will precess at different rates. So you'll start to shear out the ring because mm -hmm. of the oblateness of the planet. And eventually you'll shear it out enough that the ring will start colliding with itself. And those collisions will damp the ring's inclination to be the same as the equator of the planet. And so that's one of the reasons why planetary rings in our solar system are all about the equator. If they get any inclination, they will be damped down. So that is a really complicated explanation. <laughs> but it was a good explanation and pretty much the best you can do without drawing things on the board. So in short, if you form a ring that's inclined, it will shear out. And eventually that shearing will cause ring particles to collide with one another and they'll damp down. So let's go to the specific case of New Eden. So we didn't quite find a good image that showed us all of the rings of New Eden, but there's at least one big ring, which let's assume is the ring that's around the planet's equator. And then there are several smaller rings, meaning narrower rings, that are inclined to that bigger ring. And we can't quite tell if they're actually crisscrossing it, if they're going through gaps in the ring, or what. So... In principle, you could construct a planet where that crisscrossing ring set would be stable at least for a very short amount of time. Eventually, those inclined narrow rings will shear out due to this precession and will hit either themselves or the other rings. And so eventually you'll lose the inclined rings. So the one thing that I do like in this episode... Well, I like a lot of things. <laughs> is they do mention that the rings are weird. And they mention that they're young, I think. Oh, do they? I think they do. I, I feel like they mention that they are they formed like a few hundred years ago or something. I didn't catch that, but maybe... And that would possibly play into their radioactive nature as well. Probably. So you imagine, let's say New Eden had an original ring, a big ring, and some really radioactive rich asteroid flies by, gets disrupted by tides, and forms this one of these inclined rings. That inclined ring could survive plausibly for a short amount of time before it eventually becomes destabilized, likely collisionally damping and falling into the, the normal ring plane. So while this inclined crisscrossing ring scenario is odd and you wouldn't expect to form a planet with crisscrossing rings. It's conceivable that you could have a planet that for a very short amount of time had crisscrossing rings. And that's why I'm okay with this, this episode because they comment about the rings being odd, 
about them being young, I think. And then they happen to destabilize the moment that they get there, which is what you'd expect is eventually the rings will destabilize. Uh, maybe they destabilize way too fast. <laughs> like you usually deal with orbital timescales, which are very slow. Or maybe there's some other weird dynamical process that's controlling the stability of the rings. Like maybe there's some distant moon that's driving a resonance with the rings that's exciting inclination or something. But the crisscrossing rings, yes, they, they are weird looking. Yes, they're dynamically unstable. But you could imagine a scenario where you have a, a ring that is around for a couple hundred years and then gets obliterated, I think. Yeah, I love that we retcon this because it's like... As you explained, the ring configuration is unstable, but that's the whole scientific problem that they need to solve with the asteroid corralling the ring particles because the ring particles are unstable. They're falling into the planet, and it all drives with them being radioactive and the rings being young. So maybe the Discovery writers, we should give them more credit than we have been. <laughs> Initially, I saw this and I was like, no way. That's like, why would you do that? Um, but... I mean, if they are if they are literally crisscrossing, mm -hmm. like one ring is going through another ring, that's a problem. But we're Trekkies. We're really good at bending the story and or science to, <laughs> to, to make it work yeah. in some way. Let me know if you figured out how to make the spore drive in the mycelial network oh work. Yeah. I think you're more likely to, to stumble onto that than I will. Still working on it. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess as we're uh, talking about New Eden, I'll just open it up to any other comments or things that you really loved about this episode in particular. Uh, this was a brilliant episode. It's probably... I'm tied between this episode and the first episode of the second season, Brother, as being my favorite episode so far. Because it was just really well written, really well directed, really well acted. It was it was just a classic Star Trek episode. It felt like we were back in like TNG or something, but in the Discovery, like elevated filming style. Absolutely. I, I, I do think that the first two episodes were fantastic for two completely different reasons. Episodes three and four were good, but not quite as good for me. I feel like they're setting a lot of things up. They're, they're putting their chess pieces in the right place for hopefully bigger payoffs down the line. The first two episodes were very much self-contained stories. Like you could watch, you could watch New Eden completely separated from the rest of the, the, the line. As you could with Brother, even though they're both setting up arcs. They're both just good self-contained stories. Mm-hmm. All right, so last thing, James, how's bingo going? <laughs> um, I think you're still winning. I, I don't know, maybe Peter checked off like five things last episode. We've had to, just like bending science, we've had to bend our bingo <laughs> to, to match what we think. Indeed. So um, I currently have four things checked. The newest one, which was from an obol for Charon, is I had one about you see a Starfleet officer changing with a different uniform. Either they change division or change from the Enterprise red, yellow, blue style to the Discovery metallic style. And so uh, Commander Non appeared in that episode in the Discovery uniform. In a scant, too. So that, that was a completely new thing. 
but that's the only one I got in the last one. I don't know. Did you get anything? Yeah. So I got also something that we, we kind of had to bend. I have someone has to reverse the polarity of something, which I imagined in my head there was some engineering problem, and maybe Stamets says to Tilly, just reverse the polarity of the quantum flux matrix, whatever, <laughs> as part of this throwaway line to um, Technobabble something. Uh, but it turned out that the sphere in episode four and all before Sharon basically reversed the polarity of its quote unquote stasis field that had caught discovery and pushed discovery away from itself as it was exploding and dying. That was a really interesting sphere, actually. They actually yeah. gave it numbers for how large it was and how massive it was. Oh yeah, they did. I remember and that. And I think I wrote them down somewhere. What was it? Um, 565 kilometers in diameter and 6 by 10 to the 20 kilograms. I think. Did you figure out the density? Uh, I was going to, but then I, <laughs> I, I just looked up Enceladus because I know Enceladus is roughly the same size. It's 510 kilometers or so in diameter and one approximately 1 by 10 to the 20 kilograms. So it's a little bit more dense than Enceladus is. What if this was Enceladus? <laughs> <laughs> or the the core of Enceladus. Yeah. yeah, that was a really cool concept that the, there was this completely, completely alien alien that um, we encountered and completely misunderstood. It reminds me of some of my favorite aliens in Star Trek, like the Tardigrade or the Horda, which are life forms that we think have some intention because we don't understand them and we might even be afraid of them at first, which is kind of a natural response to something you don't understand. And then you start digging into it a little bit more. And I've said understand too many times in this sentence, but you basically <laughs> understand it better through scientific investigation. And that's a, just a classic Star Trek story. I'm now picturing in your dream Starfleet bridge crew, you have a Horda at helm and a Tardigrade <laughs> at Ops, or actually strike that, reverse it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so James, I think I know for the next episode, episode five, which is yet to come out as of the recording of this podcast, what I'm going to be able to check off because I have Stamets returns to the mycelial network as one of my things if you had to predict what thing you think you'll be able to check off in the next episode or really hope that you'll be able to check off in your wildest <laughs> dreams what would it be i think i have two that may happen in the next episode one is culver comes back to life mm -hmm. we know he's gonna appear we've known that since he's on the credits and he's gonna be linked to the mycelial network somehow then the other one that i really hope just to piss off Mike, <laughs> is the tardigrade returns. Or now, since they're going into the mycelial network, maybe it'll be a whole field of tardigrades, and then Mike will both like die from excitement and then weep for not getting the pick Um I'm still waiting for them to keep jumping around, chasing these red bursts, and visit the Delta Quadrant and find the Borg. <laughs> if they did that, I would actually have bingo, but that's highly unlikely. I need Cybok to be referenced. <laughs> I'm hoping for that so hard. I really think that would be great. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds again, James, and best of luck with your bingo checking off. You too. <laughs> that concludes episode 63 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my latest conversation with Dr. James T. Keane. 
learned something new about the Kuiper Belt object MU69 and about the processes that form and influence planetary rings. James has been a really valuable guest on this podcast, and I'm just so glad that I was able to have him back on board to talk about this breathtaking and truly unique planetary flyby. Prior to New Horizons, we'd never been to a Kuiper Belt object. Now, we've seen two. With every kilometer, New Horizons is making history, going where no one has gone before. Happy sailing, New Horizons, and I'll see you out there. Well, when is the James Keene Art Exhibit happening? Like, when are you going to be over at LACMA or NOMA or something? Oh, God, no. Um, (laughs) uh, That is not a current aspiration of mine. Um, I think it's far more likely that I'll end up writing or making a book with graphics and my art rather than trying to actually push for it in a a museum or anything like that. I will be showing a lot of this art at LPSC this year. I have a poster that will have all my collected drawings from U69 and how it's evolved, but no museum. <laughs> you know, because you could do, uh, I'm now thinking about when we went to Disneyland and there was that spinny thing, and like you could do a flip book with MU69, it would just like get, it would be start with two spheres and then it would get flatter over time. <laughs> yeah, so I. That's a really good idea with MU69. Um, I thought about doing that actually for my thesis. I I wanted to do a little like flip book in the corner at the bottom page of my entire dissertation, like showing the moon get hit by an asteroid or something. Um, didn't end up having time. Not the highest priority for writing a dissertation in like the last few weeks of a PhD, but flip books are an interesting medium. Yeah. When I write the book of all my stuff, that will have to be in there. <laughs>